we, when we talk about going to different levels, how many knows you do go into different dimensions? You go into different realms. You go into different spiritual levels in order in our in our maturity, even as a congregation. You and I do that on a personal level, but we do it also as a church. And in order for us to go to the next levels, we're going to have to obey this message. This is the message of the hour. This is something that we all got to get. This is something we got to get within our spirit. This morning, we're going to get right into the Word of God, and we're going to see again the Old Testament types and shadows that is in the tabernacle and how they relate to our worship experience right here in this 21st century. A few weeks ago, we talked about the brazen altar and the sacrifices that was placed upon it and how it was a symbol of the crucifixion of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ on the cross in the New Testament. We talked about the day of atonement and what all of that meant. We're not going to go all over that. But we revealed how that the brazen altar was a symbol of judgment, uh, judgment due to it being made of brass. This represented justification by faith through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's a judicial act of God that pronounces us just as if we've never sinned. God judges us to be holy. Aren't you thankful for just we're not going to give a long introduction of the last two sermons of this series, but I do encourage you to go online, listen to them, so that this, this will make sense to you here today. The first furnishings of the temple we talked about was the brazen altar. That was out of what we, it was out in what we call the outer court. It is the first piece of, see the altar of burnt offerings. You're coming in from the east. That's the first thing that you ran into. That's where the sacrifices was laid. That's where the burnt offerings were laid. It was the first place that one had to go before for entering into the presence of God. There was no way to get into God's presence without going by the way of that brazen altar. And this was a symbol of salvation in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way to get to heaven. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one way for you and I to make it into eternity and have eternal bliss. And that is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. There is no other way. How many can say amen to that? Salvation brings you into contact to God's presence and God's favor. However, there is more than just an altar in this outer court, but there is also a laver that no one wants to talk about. When you go into the east, you see the altar of incense, and then you see that bronze laver. That's also in what we call the outer court. In other words, they are two different furnishings representing two different types of work. The altar is representing the place of sacrifice. It is representing the place of salvation. But the culture that we live in today, they want to totally ignore and reject and overlook and despise this laver that is in the courtyard because of what it represents. They like the altar. They want to be forgiven, but they want to ignore this laver. We don't even want to realize that it exists. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It is by the way of this laver that one is brought into the holy place, which represents a maturity and a relationship with God. There's no way to go into the holy place without first washing at this laver. The question is, do you and I really want to go on with the Lord after our salvation? Do we really want to grow? Do we really want to mature? Do we really want to develop? So that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Are we wanting to be a babe and desire the sincere milk of the word all the time? Or do we want to go on into meteor things? Do we really want to, to possess a life of anointing and take, pay the cost that it takes in order to have that anointing? Anointing does not come cheap. 
Come on, somebody. Somebody help me preach here today. The question I have to ask you here today is what do you want? Do you really want to grow? Do you really want to mature? Do you really want to develop? Jesus affirmed this to us when he said in John 10, verse 1 and 2 and verse 7. Listen to what he says. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth in by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some of the way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, why did I put that here? Just listen to me for a moment. The only way into the presence of God is through repentance, confession, and salvation that was made at that brazen altar. That's where we become saved. The only way into a relationship with God, though, is through the laver. Are you listening to me? The only way through a deep-seated relationship with God is not just being forgiven of your sins, but learning how to go by that laver and wash yourself in, in the presence of God. If anyone tries to get into God's presence any other way, he's classified as a thief and a robber. That's some odd terminology that he uses here. Why would he call them thieves and robbers when describing coming into his presence? It's because a thief represents an intruder, one that is not welcome and one with an ulterior motive. A robber is someone that wants to take something that doesn't even belong to him. And let me tell you, if our ulterior motive isn't right in coming into God's presence and our hearts are not right, then we are considered in the eyes of God thieves and robbers. But let me tell you this. God says a broken heart and a contrite spirit, oh God, you will not despise. It's the man that comes humbly. It's the man that becomes broken. It's the man that becomes contrite in his spirit. You know, I want to tell you, when we come before the presence of God, we don't need to come carelessly and recklessly. We need to become reverently. Come on, somebody. We're living in an age that there is no reverence anymore. We live in an age where there's no honor anymore, and we treat God like a dish rag that we throw out and we pick up when we want him. And I want to tell you, God's sick of that. God, God's looking for a church where people will come in reverently, holy, honorably. Come on, somebody. He's looking for a church that has the goods. He's looking for a church whose heart is pure. He's looking for a church who has clean hands. He's looking for a church that's able to come in, not with ulterior motives, treating him like Santa Claus, who's throwing good gifts out from heaven. He's not wanting us to come in and get our drug fixes, just another fix here and another fix here and another blessing here. That ain't what God's about. God's looking for a people that's serious about him, that's drawn near to him with a pure hunger and a pure desire to see his kingdom advance and to see him high and lifted up. My main purpose here this morning is to teach you that this thing ain't about us. It's about him and it's all about God being honored and worshiped and it's all about the holiness of the Lord. Would you stand to your feet and give him honor? Would you give him praise? God's in this house this morning. Woo! Ah, there's a move right now taking place. We all know that sin disqualifies us from the presence of God. And many times the sins of people rob other people from what God wants to do. It's so sad. There are families being hindered by the sin of a parent. Come on. 
There's congregations that's being hindered by the sins of people. Many congregations of people are hindered by the sins of others. Moses and the remnant, Joshua and Caleb, who was well ready to go over and take the promised land, had to roam in a wilderness for 40 years because of the stiff-neckedness and the disobedience and the rebellion and the unbelief of their generations. And God says, no, we can't leave them behind. We gotta give them ample opportunity. God is patient with us. God is long-suffering with us. And God tries to pull at us. And God lets us roam around in our wilderness. 11-day journey took them 40 years. And God was patient, but when that 40 years come up, he got sick and tired of it. He got a belly full, and he wanted a different kind of people. And he destroyed, and their carcasses fell in the wilderness. And God brought up another generation that would say, hey, we're willing and we're ready to be the people you want us to be, and we'll take that promise. And 86 years old, Caleb, when he was 46, he sat there and he stared at that mountain, and he wanted it, but he couldn't have it because of the sins of the people. 40 years later, at 86 years old man comes up to that place and he looks up and he says, they say, Caleb, what do you think? He said, give me my mountain. He was an honorable man, a holy man that stood the ground the test of time. I want to tell you, the question is, what is our ulterior motive in getting into his presence? Why are we here? Why do we serve God? Is it just because we're in trouble and we need something out of him? Is it because uh, we just want a feeling, we want the thrill of it? Is it, is it uh, because we got uh, different ulterior motives? That's okay at an altar when you first start out. That's what the brazen altar is all about. You get in trouble, you run to the brazen altar. You lay it down. But let me tell you, we don't need to live like that. Amen? It's all about, it's, our life ought to be all about honoring him, making him Lord of our lives and not just sitting around having to repent of sin all the time. Amen? The presence of God belongs to them of a pure heart and those that have clean hands and those that's not sworn themselves deceitfully and those that's not lifted up their souls into vanity. The presence of God is for the children of God because blessed are the pure in heart. We're the ones that's going to see the workings of God. Notice, however, that there's the second furnishing in the outer court. We like the altar. We want to go there. It's a place of forgiveness. Thank God. First John 1 and 9, if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all that happens at the brazen altar. Thank God for the forgiveness of sin, amen? But the slaver was also in the outer court. The slaver stood between the doorway to the holy place and the brazen altar. The laver was not made for sinners like the altar. The altar's made for the sinner. It's made for the man that makes mistakes. But the, this, this laver was made for the priest, representing us in the New Testament, all of us as children of God. Because the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 2 and 9, you are a chosen generation. You're a what? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The scripture lets us know that we're all priests in the New Testament. And we are all called, we're all chosen, we're all ministers, every single one of us. When we come and get saved, it's more than just being saved so we go to heaven. We become the priesthood of God. We become the salt of the earth. We become the light of the world. We're the only hope the world has. Can I have an amen? But listen to what verses 17 through 19 as they play out for us. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, thou shalt also make a laver of brass and his foot also of brass to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar 
and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. Now what's this all saying? God tells Moses, make me a laver. He tells them what to make it out of, make it out of brass. He tells them the dimensions and all that. We didn't read all that. And he told them where to place it, at the door, at the entrance of the holy place. You see it right there. So I want you to understand, this tells him, uh, and then he tells him, this is for Aaron, the priest, to worship themselves. I want to tell you, this is for the believer. Sinners don't get to this point. They have to go by the way of the altar. This is for you and I, this laver. This is the place that you and I go after salvation. It is not the same work. Everybody with me? He even goes on and he gives us words of warning in verse 20 and 21. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they, what? Die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offerings made for a fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generation. Now, I'm not going to go on a dead horse here, but I could preach about 20, 25 minutes just right there. He tells them if they do not go into the holy, they can, if they try to go into the holy place or if they try to offer up sacrifices on the brazen altar on the behalf of the other people without being washed at this laver, that they're going to die. That there is a such thing as being qualified for ministry. Amen? Just being saved don't make you a spiritual celebrity overnight. And that's where we are in America. I'm saved. I'm ready to preach. No, you're not. Come on, somebody. There has got to be a qualification for ministry. And if we're not careful, we'll let people start out way too early in the ministry and they'll serve. In, I'm not talking about that God don't be patient with us and we grow in our ministries. But I want to tell you, if their heart has not been separated unto a, a call for the purpose of God, if they're not careful, they're not going to die trying to serve God and do the right thing. The question I have for you here today is, wasn't they already washed and cleansed and forgiven at the sacrifice at the altar? Then why are they washing again? If they've already been cleansed, at the altar, then what is all this ceremonial washing doing about in the laver? Didn't the Day of Atonement take care of their sins? And the answer to that is yes. The laver represents our sanctification. And the church of God believes this. You can argue with it. We can split hairs over it. Us in the Assemblies of God have split hairs over this for years, and we say the identical same thing, but we say it in a different way. There is just a little bit of a different twist that we believe. But... It's not enough to split hairs over. But the church of God believes that sanctification is a definite second work of grace that happens in the life of the believer after one has been saved. The assembly of God says no men is sanctified at Calvary and their, and their sanctification is an ongoing process. We'll talk about that in a little bit later and I'll show you the difference of the way we believe but yet we're saying the same thing. There is a difference in being saved and one being sanctified. There's a difference. At Calvary, one is cleansed, he's washed, he's forgiven of his sin. But in sanctification, he is set apart. And there's a difference. Courtyard is the place of salvation. It's, the, it's at the foot of the cross. It's symbolic of the foot of the cross. 
It's at the altar of brass. It's, begin, it's the beginning place to the presence of God. It's where repentance, confession, and acceptance is made. It's the place that we're saved. Our names are written down in heaven. But sanctification takes us more than just into a courtyard. It takes us into a holy place, a holy relationship with God. There's no price to pay for our salvation. I want you to know that. Jesus has already prayed that for us, and it's called his vicarious sufferings. These are sufferings that he did for you and I on the cross. He was wounded for my transgression. He was bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement of peace was upon him. And through his stripes, I don't have to go to the cross. I don't have to be punished for my sin. Why? Jesus was my substitute. He took my place on that cross. That is all represented in that brass of altar. But even though we cannot, uh, 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 we cannot save ourselves by our good works because, because there is no price to pay for our salvation outside of what Jesus did. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We're saved by faith through grace, period. We're not saved by our works, amen? But even though that Jesus paid that price for us in salvation, there is a price, a part of a price, that you and I have to pay for our sanctification. There is a responsibility upon us. There is a part that we have to do. You know, God, when he does miracles, he's always a co-labor together. And everything we do, even our salvation is a co-laboring together. He tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean, that we work out our plan? No, he didn't say work out the plan of salvation. There's only one way to be saved, but after you're saved, then work it out of your life with fear and trembling. Amen? But I want to tell you something. There is a suffering that you and I have to go through in order for sanctification to happen. It's called empathetical sufferings. There are sufferings that you and I will have to go through. I want to tell you salvation is not always a bed of roses. Amen? We almost preach a heresy. When you get saved, everything's going to be all right. Well, it is in a spiritual sense, and it is a wonderful thing, and there is deliverance, but there is things you and I go through. Just being saved does not get you to the place you never go through anything. These sufferings are called denying ourselves, separating ourselves, consecrating ourselves. Hear those words? They're also seen in biblical terms such as sacrifice. How many love sacrifice? None of us do. It's called denial. How many like to deny themselves? It's called dying out. It's called crucifying. It's called mortifying. It's called discipline. It's called consecration. It's called circumcision. Them are hard words. And every one of those terms are read, uh, used in the word of God describing us. We're to circumcise our hearts. We're to deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow him. And if we don't, we're not, we're not worthy to be his disciples. It's called consecrating, dedicating, committing. And them are terms that this generation does not even want to hear. They don't want to be committed to anything. They don't want to, they don't want to have to concentrate. They don't want to have to be uh, inconvenienced at all. Don't inconvenience me. And if I have to go to a church that's always inconveniencing me, then I'll find me another church. The problem of it is, I want to tell you, sometimes the gospel inconveniences you because it steps between you and hell and says, don't go there, I'm a roadblock for you. And it inconveniences you because you're set on going where you want to go. But the gospel stops you from headed into destruction. Some inconveniences is necessary for your life. They're necessary for your growth. Come on, somebody. Help me preach. They're also seen 
in these things called crucifying. How many wants to be crucified? Well, Jesus done that for me, yet, yeah, but Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ lives within me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. You know what Paul said? I die daily. He said, follow me even as I follow Christ. And he said, I die daily. This dying aspect is not just dying at Calvary. It's an everyday decision that you got to die out to Christ. Every day that I live, I wake up and say, uh-oh, I got to be dead to Kent today. I got to be dead to my agenda today. I got to be dead, and I have to seek the Lord and his order and his arrangement for my life for that day. It's called crucifixion. We're crucified with Christ. You see, at salvation, the spirit's saved. It's born again. And, and, but there's a problem. The flesh isn't. Amen? You're not in a glorified body just because you get saved. Salvation introduces our born-again spirit for the very first time to a carnal man, and this is where the warfare sits in. Matter of fact, Galatians 5 and 17 says, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, and it'll cause you to do things you don't want to do. He says, in other words, the flesh is always opposing the spirit. The spirit is saved, but the body isn't. There can still be entanglements and addictions and faulty thinking and habits and things in a person's life even after that they've been saved because of long-term behavior. It's patterns, it's habitual. Come on, somebody. Sometimes we use the term strongholds to describe such things. That's why that Paul said in Romans 7, 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, he says, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Paul says, I got the desire to do good. I want to do good, but I'm having a tough time trying to find out how to do that. He said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, in my flesh, there's no good thing. Paul went on and talked about his war in the flesh that was against him. He even said, when I try to do good, evil's present with me. And there's a way, there's a, a war in my members fighting me from the good that I desire to do. Paul says, I want to do good, but all of a sudden there's a war. There's a fight. There's a struggle. How many's ever found that struggle to be true? How many's wanted to do certain things for Christ, but there's an opposing factor out there? As a matter of fact, wasn't it Romans 8, 5 through 7, where it says, for they that are after the flesh, they do mind the things of this flesh, but they that are after the spirit, mind the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is an enmity against God, it's at war and it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Let's just sum that up. He said, I want you to know that if you live out your carnal desires, you're going to die even after that you're saved. This business of once in grace and always in grace is not true. You can, you can package it any way you want it, but I want to tell you, when God told the priest to have to wash, and he's representing the priesthood of the New Testament, he says, when you worship this laver, he says, this is a perpetual statute forever. And it's to all generations. We have to pass through it just like they passed through it. They passed through it in a literal form. We passed through it in a spiritual form. You and I have to be sanctified by the presence of God by the word of God and by the spirit of God. Can I have an amen? Or am I losing you? We are, the Bible tells us that the carnal mind is an enmity. It's at war with God. It can't be subject to the law of God. Don't know how. In other words, if it's in control, it's gonna cause you to sin. If the flesh man rises up above the spirit man, you're in trouble. Amen? 
Salvation saves, it redeems the spirit of man. He's born again spiritually. When I got saved, my spirit that was dead in trespasses and sin, it comes alive, it's regenerated, it's made new, yes. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2 and 1, and you has he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. God made me alive, my spirit man come alive. I didn't have a spirit man before I was saved. My born again was I was born spiritually. And salvation won't become a new creature, a new creation. And his spiritual senses come alive and he really knows right from wrong. And why it's one of the greatest torments that there is is know what's right, but you don't feel like you're empowered to be able to live it out. The struggle, the war, 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, therefore if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away, behold all things become new. I agree with that. You got a new spirit inside of you. But the problem is, it's almost like a newborn baby. Think about it. It's been alive in a womb. It's been sheltered in its mama. It's been protected there in that womb. And then birth happens to that child. The baby wakes up. The doctor spanks it on the bottom. He starts crying and he says, wow, where am I? What's happened here? Amen. And for the very first time, that baby is introduced to a cruel world. And even so, after our new birth, our spiritual man is introduced to the reality of our cruel old man, the sinful flesh. Amen? It's almost like we get born again, and then somebody comes along and says, hey, spirit, let me introduce you to another person. It's the old Kent. Amen? Really, it's the old Kent saying, hey, I'm still around. I'm still here. The new desire, the new hope, the new life, and the new heart that we receive at salvation is now facing the reality and the resistance of our carnal man. We're being opposed. We're being fought by our flesh, our own flesh. Sometimes we want to blame the devil for things when in really it's our old sinful nature that's rearing up. It ain't got nothing to do with the devil. It's got to do with us. It's got to do with our old man. Amen? When you got saved, did all your temptations go away? No. No. Now you gotta know how to learn to handle them. You'll never overcome temptation if you don't go by the way of the laver. You're always gonna be at that altar of brass. And let me tell you, that altar of brass is good to be saved by, but it's hell to live by. The stinking smell of burning flesh, always up and down, rolling. There's no joy in that. There's no joy in victory, defeat, victory, defeat, uh, sin, and then forgiveness. There's no joy in that. There's no life of happiness in that. Sanctification is the setting apart of our spiritual man that's been born again from our carnal man. It does not glorify us, and we'll talk about that later. It is empowering the spiritual man over the carnal man. It empowers the desires of the spirit to rule over the desires of the flesh because the flesh man is we're learning how to crucify him, mortify him, cast him down, amen? He's like, he's inactive. It's like a cancer in remission. It's there, but he has no effect upon us. There's people that's got cancer, but they're living a life of victory. And they'll say, well, he's in remission. That's kind of like this thing is. When you're saved and your spirit man's in that old man, don't ever take it for granted. Don't, don't, don't ever think that he can't, you're, that, you, that you, you're, you're too spiritual to be tricked up, take heed when you think you stand lest you fall is what Paul said. Don't get overconfident. Always understand that you're dying is every day. Don't ever think, well, I'll skip today. No, it's an everyday process. 
This is why the Galatians 5 and 16 says, this I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not what? Fulfill the lust of your flesh. The spirit man has to be in charge for you to overcome fleshly activity. He went on and said in Romans 8, 12 through 14, therefore brethren, we are not debtors to the flesh but to the spirit. In other words, what is our affections gonna be set on and what are we gonna be indebted to? He says, we're gonna be indebted not to the things of the flesh, but to the things of the spirit. For if we live out to the flesh, we're gonna die. But if we live out to the spirit and we do mortify the deeds of our body, we shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they're the ones that's the sons of God. Who's the sons of God? Those that's led by the Holy Spirit. Those that's empowered, that the spiritual man's living out of them. That's our desire here today. The people that go by the way of the laver are people that press past judgment at an altar and they pursue a life of peace and sanctification and consecration and commitment. They are a people who do not want to live in the courtyard, always repenting and living a life of failure, but they want to go into a holy place with God. They want to be a part of that inner circle. They want to be a part like them 12 disciples. They want to be a remnant. They don't want to be out here in a crowd looking in and saying, boy, I wished I was Peter. Boy, I wished I was John. Boy, I wished I was so-and-so. But they're saying, hey, I choose to be a part of the inner circle with Jesus. I'm going to be the one that sits down with him. I'm going to be like the beloved John who lays my head in his bosom. Come on, somebody. This is, this is the kind of people that we got to become. This is the kind of people that we got to desire to be. I want to be a person that gets so close to Jesus. I want to be the innocent. I want to be called the remnant. You know, everybody, there was all kinds of Jews, Jewish people, and Jewish uh, uh, different kinds of sects and different kinds uh, of positions and different, but all of them wasn't the remnant. And just like congregations, they may say they're believers, but there are remnant churches. What does that mean? There are churches that are set apart for the glory of God and God says you are honorable people. You are people that I can use. You are a remnant church. You're the one that houses the inhabitation of the spirit of God. That's what I desire at the palace of praise. That we're not just a congregation. We're not just somebody that comes in carelessly and recklessly, oh, we got a good church. Oh, we're just such a family. Oh, it's good that we're a family, but that's not what we're all about. It's good that we love our neighbor. It's good that we, we're, we give money to missions. It's good we sing in choirs. It's, oh, that's good. That ain't what God's looking for. He's looking for a pure people that come in and our main aim and our aim goal is to please the Father, to be one with him and Jesus. Oh, would you just lift your hands and honor the King of Kings here today. Oh, God, help me. Hallelujah, you're saying, well, pastor, you ain't, you ain't hit a nerve yet. I'm fixing to. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verse one through four. I'll read it kind of slow. Furthermore then, we beseech you. That word beseech, we could preach there. Man, he's begging. This is what we want for you. And sometimes when we think that people's begging us to do something, it's all about them begging us to do something that will benefit them but in this scripture, 
He's begging them to do something that benefits themselves. He says, I beseech you, brethren. Who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Talk with me. He's the brethren. He's talking to the church. Not talking to the sinner. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and we exhort you. We're trying to encourage you. We're trying to edify you in this. We exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you receive of us how you ought to walk and to please God so that you would abound more and more. For you know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Say the will of God. How many want to be in the will of God? This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornicating. The word fornicating there is not just going out in sexual relationship, but it's doing anything that brings a division between you and God. You're fornicating with the things of the world when you are to be committed to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Come on. And then he goes on that every one of you, say every one of us, he's talking to all of us. Look at somebody say, he's talking to you. Now guys, you can take this all you want, break it down. And I wish I had time. He's talking to every single one of us, the brethren. And he said, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And then he says, you ought to be able to abstain from fornicating against God by sinning with other things in your life, with other gods. And you ought to know how to possess, say possess. That means to bring into control, to own, to have ownership of. He said, you ought to know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. He's telling the believer, you ought to know how to be sanctified. You ought to know how to possess yourself under sanctification and honor. Notice the word that goes with sanctification, honor. Everybody in the Christian realm don't have honor with God. All of us are not friends of God. They're a family of God. I've got family that's not very honorable. I got family I wouldn't loan my car to. Come on, somebody. But I got friends that's honorable. Amen? And some of us need to understand there is honorable positions that we need to have with God. Oh, I wish I could preach there. Notice, first of all, he's addressing the brethren again. If sanctification all happened at salvation, there's a part of it that does, and it can happen all at once. Then if it, but if it just happened in the work of salvation by itself, then there would be no laver and there would be no need for Paul to address us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 4. I want you to look again at the altar. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. The laver is two. It's the second work. And Paul says you ought to know how. As a believer, you're already saved. If I'm saved and already sanctified, then how should I know how to possess my vessel into sanctification and honor? Amen? Sanctification is to the believer, not the unbeliever. It is the saint to the saint, not the sinner. Paul said that each of us ought to know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. And even though there is a cleansing aspect at, 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 of sanctification that happens at Calvary, it does, Yet there's also a separation of the heart that takes place after the experience of salvation. There's somewhere there that God takes your heart to a definite second work that sanctifies you, that sets that heart apart. And even though I believe in the second definite work of grace, 
We also know and recognize as the church of God that after our heart is sanctified, set apart, then it's an ongoing process to maintain and grow in that sanctification every day. That we grow in it, that it's an ever going, every process of being sanctified. The laver was used more than any other instrument by the priest in the whole tabernacle. It was a constantly going by. Washing feet, washing hands. It was a constant work. However, let me say this. If your heart has not set apart, you'll never go to the laver to do it. You'll not have the desire to do it. You'll just be that courtyard Christian walking around carelessly and recklessly. I'll, I'll do this and I'll ask for forgiveness tomorrow. <laughs> I'm gonna go get drunk on Friday night, but Sunday's coming, I'll ask God for forgiveness. The heart has to be set apart before you can grow in sanctification. It's a definite second work of God. Now some people, they know how to yield better than others. And there are people that they come to Calvary and they ask God to forgive them and they push right on. They can be sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit in the same day, in the same second. So we can't put time limits or put a procedure on it or put a manual out because it's different for everybody. I know the night I was sanctified where I really made a commitment, where I mortified the deeds of my body, where I crucified my affections and my lust. Come on. I knew the day that I really put down the old man and say, God, help me, renew me, and let me have a right spirit with inside of me. Amen? This is where we're headed. Believers have to go by the way of the laver. And let me say this. I cannot grow in what I've not committed. You can't grow in something you ain't committed to. You're never going to see anything through if you're not committed Paul said, I know whom I believed and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Everybody said, oh, God's keeping my salvation. Not if you've not committed it to him. There's a commitment we have to make. The preserving, the honor, the respect of God reaching down and preserving you is by your commitment upon him. The laver, it is here where the ceremony cleansing of the priest's hands took place before they went into the holy place. The laver not only had an upper part for the cleansing of the priest's hands, but it also had a bottom part when you read it to cleanse their feet. Now that's a message within itself. I'll just give you the symbolics and move on. Their hands represented their work, their service, their loyalty, and it was to be a holy service rendered unto God. No, no strings attached, no agendas, you know, and it wasn't about us doing what we like to do for God. It's us being committed to the purpose of God and being willing to sacrifice in order to see that come to pass. Everybody thinks pastoring's glamorous until they try it. This is calling I did not want. I rejected it. The overseer called me, and I had all in my mind, made up my mind, no, I am not taking that church. And Jenny sat back there, and I know you're going to take it. You're supposed to take it. I'm not taking that church, Jenny. Yes, you will. I know you will. I'm not doing You'll do the right thing. I know it's, our, it's the will of God for us. And I, No, I'm not. I was getting mad. I am not going Matter of fact, we went to Ninth and Cedar in a revival. Me and her dating. We weren't even married. And I sat down and I looked at her and I said, aren't you glad we don't have to come to a church like this? 
Oh, you think that's funny? We're driving down through Pershing Street and I pointed at a house and we were engaged at this time and I pointed at a house and said, aren't you glad we don't have to live like that? The very house we moved into. <laughs> there was sacrifice that I had to make. The overseer called me and said, Brother Miller, and I knew he was gonna ask me that he wanted me to take the Nathan Cedar Church. I, I gotta ask you a question. I said, yeah, I'll take it. Ball my eyes out. Because I was doing the, I went resistantly, and it was hard. It was a, it was a, 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 a sacrifice to pack up my little family, leave my home church, my security, and everything else, and go to a church where there was nothing but a handful of people. Wasn't easy. But it was a calling, and it was, and it was a commitment. It was because there was a heart that was sanctified that could not say no to the lover of my soul. It was a love that overwhelmed me for him that made me step out and trust. Can I have an amen? amen. But their hands represented that work and that service, yes. Their feet represented their walk, their conduct, their behavior, their way of life, the way we're to live, the way we're to communicate, the way that we're to talk, the way that we're to treat our fellow men had to be holy. Our feet, the, our way of life had to be changed. We don't just need our spirit born again, but we need our bodies washed with pure water. Now, it make sense to you? Listen to what Hebrews 10, says. Let us draw near with a true heart. And God wants us near him with a, heart, a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. That's our spirit man, our hearts sprinkled. And having it sprinkled from an evil conscience. And then he says, and our bodies washed with pure water. What bodies he's talking about? He's not talking about our physical body where we go take a bath. He's talking about the flesh man. He's talking about the affections and the lust of our flesh. He's saying, wash them. Wash them. Bathe them in the word of God. Bring them into captivity every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and pull it down. Come on, somebody. Crucify yourself to those things. Wash them. Put the word involved. Come on. Amen. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body is to be under subjection to the spirit man. My body is not to rule me. My spirit man is to rule me. Your spirit man is to be in charge of your life, not your flesh. I hear people all the time say, I just couldn't help it. I had to say it. Yeah, that was your old man. Amen. Do you think us preachers don't have ungodly affections down deep inside of us? There have been times I want to punch somebody in the nose. I do. There's times I get mad. There's times my tongue, mm. It's not wrong to have the desires. It's wrong to yield to them. I crucify them. I mortify them. I circumcise them. I put them under my feet. I cast them down. Why my spirit man has to be sanctified, set apart for the glory of God. Amen. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Say cleanse ourselves. From all filthiness of flesh. Say flesh. And spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He said, you don't only 
clean up your spirit, you clean up your flesh also because if you don't clean up your flesh, your spirit ain't gonna be clean very long. Amen? As Paul that said in Ephesians 5 and 26, talking about the church, that he might sanctify it with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And God's looking for a church that don't have any wrinkles, blemishes, spots. He's looking for a holy church. You're saying, brother, that ain't possible in the 21st century. That's our problem. And whoever who says that ain't been by the way of the laver. Amen? Jesus said, be ye holy for I am holy. And without holiness, no man sees God. We're not gonna see revival. We're not gonna see power. We're not gonna see manifestation. We're not gonna see miracle without holiness. We can pray all we want. We can give an offering all we want. We can try to sing it down, pop it down, preach it down, sing it down, teach it down. We can do it all. That ain't what brings the glory. What brings the glory is the holiness, the sanctification, the setting apart of the church. Oh, give him praise, church. Hallelujah. Those of you that may not be Pentecostal, we just had tongues. Then we had the interpretation of those tongues. You can find that in the scripture. But the church is to be holy. It's without blame. And we are to be a separated people, free of entanglements and bondages and addictions and strongholds, enslavements and lust. There were things after my salvation that didn't just fall off and there were other things that did. I don't understand that. When I got saved, my anger, boom, it was gone. Man, there were things I was addicted to, boom, they were gone, but there were other things that didn't go away. And God would deal with me about certain different things. I could tell you several of them, but I had to go through the sanctification process of being like, the roe, the deer that panteth after the water brook. Oh God, my heart panteth after you like that. I can become hungry, I become thirsty. I begin to say, oh God, sanctify me. And my prayer begin to be sanctify, cleanse me, set me apart for you, oh God. Let me be a vessel of honor. Let me not be a vessel of wood, hay, and stubble. We'll talk about later if we get to it. God, let me be a vessel pleasing in your sight. Rid me of this desire that seems to have not been yet crucified. Help me, O oh God. 
God delivered me of a lot of things. One of the things he dealt with me about, and I'm not going to go into all of it, and you're going to, it may hit a nerve with some of you, and I'm, I'm not saying, I'm saying God dealt with me this way. I smoked cigarettes, and that was one of the things, the first thing he began to hit, man, he nailed me on it. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're defiling the temple, and this is unhealthy for you. And he's saying it's hurting your witness. You're a stumbling block to others. And he just kept on and kept on. Man, I felt convicted, and man, I got to praying about it. And I wrestled them things. I'd throw them out of the car, put them, throw them in the ditch, and drive down the road five miles, turn around, go back, and pull them out of the ditch, and light one up. I remember one night coming back from Dexter and I was just needing a cigarette so bad and I had an old 56 Ford car and it didn't have a cigarette lighter and I didn't have my cigarette lighter on me. And I remember looking in the ashtray and there was an old cigarette butt that was about that long and I got that thing and I thought, now how am I gonna light? And I, it dawned on me, my old car, you'd lift up the hood and the, the old uh, um, uh, motor, the manifold would get beat red like a pot stove. I'd put that cigarette down there and I, and it wouldn't catch on that day for some reason. I guess God taught me a lesson because he had been dealt with me. Put that thing in my mouth and went down there like that, but the butt was, I forgot I had a big nose and whoosh, I seared my nose on that manifold. Needless to say, I went to church that Sunday night and I got sanctified. Amen. Set apart. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23 says, in the very God of peace. God's a God of peace. He's not at war with you. God's not at war with us. The problem is our flesh is at war with God. But God ain't warring against us. He wants to offer us peace. But the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now the word holy there is not H-O-L-Y. It's W-H-O-L-L-Y. This is to the believer He's saying the work that started at Calvary, I want to finish it. I want to sanctify you wholly, completely. Amen? And then he goes on and says that he might, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless before the coming of the Lord. What did he say? We're to be sanctified wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, in body, in soul, and in spirit. He wants you and your flesh man to be strong in the sense it's crucified. He wants your soulless realm, your emotional realm to be strong and healthy, and he wants your spirit to be healthy. Amen? Sanctification is God's will concerning us. Look what it says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from being fornicators to God. Sanctification is designed so that I can please God to where I can abound more and more. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.1. He says, as you have received of us how you ought to walk, this is how you ought to live your lives, and this is how you please God. Say, please God. So that you would abound more and more even your sanctification. Abundant life is in sanctification. Amen? If it's God's will for me to be sanctified and set apart so I can abound more and more and more, it's about me growing. If that is true, then I'm being disobedient if I do not pursue, strive, fight, and seek after sanctification of heart. That's why Paul said, set your affections on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth. Change your affections. Sanctification also pleases God. As you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God. You know what Hebrews 11 and 5 says? And Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. How many of you want to please God? 
Then be sanctified. So many people are fighting and opposing sanctification because it deals with sacrifice. It deals with self-denial, crucifying the flesh, desires. It deals with worldly lust. It deals with commitment, dedication, consecration, abstinence, abstaining. That's hard. Right now I'm on a diet and I went to a party and there were 11 different cakes. That's sin for them to do that to me. Amen? I had to abstain. Everything, and I'd go by them cakes. I'd turn my back on them. I'd done everything I could to stay away from those cakes. We live in a culture that totally rejects the idea of that of self-discipline, morality, accountability, responsibility, and holiness. For a preacher to preach on holiness, let me be honest with you. It's considered to be a hate message and a judgmental message. They believe it is an outdated message like the Constitution is an outdated document for America. They now want a panel discussion in the place of preaching so that we can all come to a medium and that we can all compromise. Let's just have our panel discussions, see what everybody thinks about this issue. Come on. They believe freedom is ability to do anything you want to do. No restrictions, no rules, no laws, no checks, no balances, just no, no des- denial. Just do what you want to do. Amen? The way the, woke men- the way the woke mentality hates and is appalled to the conservative movement of America is the same it is with the courtyard believer to the message of the laver and that of sanctification. People get mad when you preach holiness. You know what I've found? I have found out that the world a lot of times has more standards than that of the world. I mean, the world has more standards than that of the church. It isn't the church boycotting businesses that's promoting transgenders who's boldly proclaiming we're coming after your children that's really making the difference. It ain't the church making the difference. It isn't the church boycotting Anheuser-Busch. It's the people that go to the bars that's making the difference. They got a standard. As a matter of fact, some of them are even saying, man, I wouldn't go to that church. Man, I drink with that old boy every Friday night, and they look at him as a hypocrite for going down there. They have more of a standard than the guy that's in the church. Amen? They say while a big portion of the world is no longer going to Disney and their finances are plummeting because of of all the sexual stuff that's going on there and the way that they're after our children, yet a big portion, they said, of the Christian community still patronizing Disney. Don't make sense. Has that hit a nerve? Oh, but I want my kid to go to Disney. Have you ever heard of self-denial? The church world has a low tolerance for standards and morality and personal commitment and accountability. It has a low tolerance of the preaching of sanctification and abstinence. Years ago, leaders would put out notes. The pastor's calling for a mandatory meeting. How dare him put mandatory? Bless God, I'll show him. Boy, is that not striking nerves from us? The church has lost so much ground simply because we're ignoring the doctrine of sanctification. And the reason is, is because we can find someone to agree with us somewhere else. So if I preach something you don't like and you don't agree with, you can find a church that will agree with you. 
Just go look around. You'll find one, and you'll sit there, and you'll come in agreement with me, and you'll fall away, and you'll live in the flesh, and you'll die. Come on, somebody. And even though I agree that yesteryears there was some legalism taught, I understand that, yet nowadays we're abandoning standards altogether. We once preached on dress codes. And yes, there was some legalistic stuff that we preached, I admit that. Yet nowadays, you dare not preach a message of dress modestly because the 25th century church will just not allow you to do so. They'll get them walk out on you. We don't preach on, hey, shorts are too short and dresses are too revealing and, you know, pants are too tight and tops are too low. We dare not mention that because, oh, that's clothesline. You're going back 50 years. You're going back 100 years. And you know what's happened to us? We've lost the art of preaching on dressing modestly. And now you know what's beginning to happen. 70% of all of our high school children are had sex or living in sexual relationships. And now we have boys dressing like girls and girls like boys because we've let down the standard. And now it's swung the pendulum way over here. Amen. We once preached. Are you with me? Now it's getting tight and I knew it would. Let me meddle a little bit. We once preached on the absence of alcohol. We can debate about it all we want. But now we have pastors drinking with their flock. We have alcohol being brought to Bible study and church events and even they're being encouraged to do so. We have songs in our culture that everybody's gravitating to. God is great. Beer is good. Laugh about it. But it's true. We've lost the war on alcoholism. We've lost the war on morality and dress codes. We once preached against homosexuality and perversion and lesbianisms, but now the church is ordaining them. And now we even have our country recognizing same-sex marriages. We've lost the war on homosexuality. We once preached against drugs, but now they've legalized marijuana, and now Christians gravitate to it without conviction because they say, oh, they legalized it. We've lost the war on drugs. We could mention high con controversial topics, hot topics, have much discussions about them. We could be talking about tattooing and multiple body piercings and body dysfunctioning and vaping and, and such things like that. And we can have healthy discussions about it. But we cannot even have healthy discussions and establish standards anymore because we're afraid of offending somebody. And if some of you were honest, just me mentioning some of those topics stirred something in, a, in, in you and it made you uncomfortable because it's a hot topic. Before long, all of our standards are going out the door. We will be nothing but a feel-good church that tickles the ears of men, give them what they want. It's called the last day church. Because it was Paul that said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4, and the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, after their flesh, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall turn their, way, their ears from the truth, and they shall be turned into fables. And then this is the next verse, very important. But watch thou talking about us, and all things and endure the afflictions of that. In other words, men like me and churches like you that hold to a standard, you're gonna come under the attack of that mob that no longer wants to hear truth. You endure the affliction, endure the hardship of it. Be men, stand up. Let them call you hate people. Let them do everything they can to twist and to turn and do whatever they wanna do. Let them call you whatever they wanna call you but you're trying to get them to heaven, amen? The sanctifying message of the gospel isn't an abusive way to control 
to dictate, to manipulate people and place them in bondage. That's not what sanctification is about. But sanctification is designed for us to abound more and more and not for the purpose to take our liberties away and our freedom away, but to give us freedom, to give us liberty. Sanctification is the gatekeeper to a life of peace and a life of righteousness. Listen to Romans 8 and 7. I'm winding down. For to be carnally minded, it's death, but to be spiritually minded, it's life and peace. To have that life of sanctification is life, it's peace. Sanctification is the gateway to the holy place, the place of relationship with God. It's the inner circle. It's the place of the anointing. And guess what? It's a pathway to the glory of God. You have to go through that holy place of discipline before you get to the holies of holies. Amen? It really doesn't matter what the crowd thinks. Don't matter what the world's saying. Don't matter how they attack you. Don't matter what kind of slurs or what kind of titles or what kind of names they put upon you or how they label you. I want to tell you this, all that matters is what God thinks. Remember, there were seven to 10 billion people on the face of the earth when the water destroyed it in the time of Noah. We said this the other way, and out of the seven, 10 billion people, only eight people were saved. I want you to understand that God does not, God does not grade on a curve, and the person that tries to go into the holiness place unworthy, recklessly, and carelessly, he's going to die. Amen? It's in the holy place where people press their way past the fear, past the condemnation, the unbelief, and they enter into a healthy faith relationship with God. They no longer are in the realm of blood and fire and burnt sacrifice around the brazen altar, but they've come to the place of dazzling gold and silver. In the holy place, the walls were covered in gold, as well as in the, the four pillars that held up the veil. There was no more brass in that holy place. Gold and silver represents precious metals, and gold represents purity, is a place of purity. So this tells me that there's an inner and outer cleansing, an inner place of purity of the spirit that enables us to have a relationship of faith instead of one out of the fear and condemnation and guilt all of the time like we have out there in that outer court. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3.12? If men build upon these foundations gold, silver, precious stones, and this is wood, hay, and stubble, each man's works will be tried by the fire. Listen to what he says. He says there's the place of gold. There's a place of silver and precious stones. But then there's a place of wood, hay, and stubble. And he said God's going to test every man's life to see what it's built upon. If you're built out of gold, silver, and precious stones, you're going to survive. But if your life is nothing but fleshly activity of wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to burn up. It's going to be gone. Come on. That's why the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Folks, if you're out here living a carnal life, you're not going to have faith. Amen. Sanctification sets us apart into a life of faith and confidence and assurance. And therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, have our petitions heard, and we will not be brought to shame. We will not be ashamed. I don't walk around wondering if God's hearing me. I'm not walking around with this guilt complex. Well, I'm not worthy. It's all because if you have that kind of a guilt complex, it's because you've not been to the laver. When one's set apart, they know who they are in Christ. They're full of assurance of faith. They're people of faith. Come on. Man, it's getting quiet. You know why we don't have our petitions heard anymore and see the miracles? It's because a big portion of the church has not been by the way of the laver. 
And we don't have the miracles and we don't have, because there's too many just hanging around the courtyard. It isn't that salvation cleanses, cleansing isn't good enough for us. I want you to know, but unless I'm set apart by the cleansing of sanctification, I will not have the confidence, the faith, and the assurance to go into the presence of God. It isn't that God's keeping us out, our own guilt complex and our own, our own uh, lack of faith and our unbelief is keeping us out. Sanctification, I will not go into that holy place and go through the rituals of those stations that we're going to talk about next week unless I'm sanctified. I will not do it. My flesh won't let me do it. But if my heart's sanctified, if I'm set apart, if I've had that work inside of me, even though I'm not glorified, even though I'm not perfect, yet the heart is set apart to now, at least it is in charge to where it can do the things that God wants it to do. Can I have a name? Is everybody understanding that? Oh, it isn't that God keeps me out of the holy place. I keep myself out. Many say that certain things isn't sin. Have you ever noticed that? Until they get into trouble, and the very thing they said wasn't sin, they'll begin to say, oh, God, I promise I won't do this, that, or the other, and they'll start naming the things they said wasn't sin. Well, if it wasn't sin, why are you naming those things that you'll never do them again? We know what's right. We know what's wrong. I don't have to get up here and meddle in your business and name every little sin. Sanctified people, holy place dwellers, they don't straddle the fence. They don't stretch boundaries. They don't test limits. They don't glance or peep at that which is questionable. They don't dabble into that which is borderline. They flee the very appearance. They touch not, they handle not the unclean thing. They come out from among them, they become separate. They present their bodies as living sacrifices. Those of you that don't know it, all of them are scriptures. And this is why that Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, if any man, say any man, purge, purge himself from these. He shall be a vessel of honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use and prepared for every good work. Amen. Why should a believer participate in things that might offend or bring a reproach or hurt their witness or bring confusion? I don't understand it. Why would a believer, you know, do things that would cause doubt or create division or raise questions or do that which is not convenient? And mainly of all, cause someone to stumble. Why would we do anything to be a stumbling block to somebody else? Because of culture. Our culture's running wild and they say, well, the, all these new fads come up and all these different things that go and we could talk about them and we could, we could go back and try to find out where they come from and wh- 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 why that we fight against them or why we don't fight against them. But the real question is this, why do something that's questionable? Why is it that we're so bent on following cultural relevance that we don't care how it affects anybody else? We're going to do what we want to do. So what it offends somebody? So what that, you know, that, that it, it, you know, somebody's going to be hurt by it. So what it hurts my witness? I'm not going to be bound by anything. I'm going to be a free spirit, do what I want. It's sickening. It's heavy in here today. Because that's where America's at. And yet Paul was so surrendered to the will of God. If I go into a place where eating meat offends them, I'm not even going to eat meat. I'm going to do, if I go to Rome, I'm going to obey their customs. I remember we went to Mexico years ago. And they told the ladies, please, 
don't wear red lipstick and don't wear red shoes. This was years ago, a mission trip where we were going. Everybody said, well, what's sinful about red lipstick? There ain't nothing sinful about red lipstick. What's sinful about red shoes? There's nothing about what, in scripture about wearing red shoes. But as the leader, I told him, gosh, don't wear red shoes and don't put red lipstick on. Why? Because it was offensive, offensive to the culture we went to because prostitutes in that area wore red lipstick and wore red shoes. Paul dealt with the cultural relevance in 1 Corinthians when he talked about the woman not shaving their head. You know why he says women don't shave your head? It's because prostitutes shave their heads. And it was a sign of prostitution. We're living in a cultural driven society that we want to jump on the bandwagons for. Nowadays, haven't you seen people that's got earlobes that hang down here because they just keep putting circles and circles and circles and they're getting big. It's a tribal thing. And everybody says, well, there's nothing in scripture not to do that and we got Christians doing it all the time. I'm, I'm just going to hit on a few things. It's hot topics. Well, maybe it's not sin, but it's not convenient. It's going to hinder you getting a good job. It's going to be offensive to your society. Why do you got to do it as a believer? Why go there? Now, I know I'm making enemies this morning, but you done said you love the pastor. I'm going to close. Why in the world can we not unify in sanctification the way the courtyard Christians can unify themselves in their beliefs? Why can't we? I don't understand. Why can't we be unified in sanctification? I was introduced to a singer for the first time. Someone told me about it, said, look him up. And when I first looked him up, man, he looked rough. So what? There ain't nothing about having long hair or beards or anything that's sinful. But he just kind of looked like a rough guy, come from a rough background. He started singing, and I thought, wow. And his lyrics were so wonderful. And they were Christian. He talked about in the, one of the songs about if God can save him, he, they can save anybody. And he was giving his personal testimony, how God bringing him out. Man, I was sitting there, and I was, I was tearing up, and his voice is wonderful. And there, there's no doubt about it, a great charisma, even an anointing. That, no doubt he's been by the way of the altar. He's had an encounter. You can see that. Don't make him perfect yet. And I was so hopeful. Man, we got a voice out there like that that's going to really make an impact in our world. And then when he got done, he started cussing like a sailor. F word and using God's name in vain and just constant, just every word out of blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there thinking, what happened to the guy that was singing? Thousands of people are flocking to him. And they're all lifting their hands in worship with him that they found a new freedom in Christ. And he gets up and cusses like a sailor and they ran him. This is where the church has gone to. We have instant celebrities and that's what happens. 
And somebody's got to preach against it because we're losing our children. You know how many funerals I've preached? And the preachers, how many funerals I've went to? I've had to do it and preachers have had to do it. I've heard preachers get up and say, and Joe is survived by his life partner. I'm thinking, okay, he had a live-in for years. They were never married. And then when they get done, boy, how Joe was a good, godly man. How he's in heaven today. And he lived in adultery his whole life. And the preacher gets up and condones it to the whole congregation. I've heard life partner, life partner, I don't know how many times. It's either wife or you're not married. I'm gonna skip a lot and this is my closing, I promise. Third closing, three's a charm. Exodus 38 and eight, and he made the laver of brass and the foot of it brass of the looking glasses of the woman assembling which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, Exodus 38 and eight. He said, I made it a brass, which is judgment. And he made it as a looking glass, as a woman's glasses. And when you begin to study that, I thought, well, what in the world is he saying there? This priest, when he walked up to that laver, that shining brass with that water in it, when the glare in it was like a mirror. He's seen himself in it. He walked up in the face of judgment and seen himself. That he could not be there out of a ritual, out of an ordinance, out of a practice. He had to bring a personal accountability to himself. He had to see himself the way that God seen him. He could not be doing things on the behalf of others until he first of all done it on the behalf of himself. Because it is not the office that sanctifies the person. It is the person that sanctifies the office. That pulpit does not sanctify me because I get it behind that. Does not mean I'm sanctified. I sanctify that pulpit by the way in which I live. And that priest walked up there. He had to deal with his own sin and recognize his own need of sanctification and he had to make himself accountable to the process of that work. And every single one of us in this building, we have to stand accountable before God. A standing in a laver of brass of judgment where we look over and I don't see Randy's face and I don't see Chuck's face. I see my own face. And it's God saying, this is me and you. I view you this way. It reveals who I am and what I am and I have to correct the things that's wrong because it's a mirror glass before God. Would you stand with me? I've poured my soul out even at the risk of losing people. Because some people say you're preaching way too strict of a doctrine, I can't live it. Yes you can. Because it's as you do this mortifying, God takes over. And the power of the Spirit enables you. And the power of the Spirit comes upon you. Faith and favor causes you to abound more and more and more. Your maturity causes you 
to grow. Now, let me say it again. When I get to that laver and I wash, I'm not glorified. I'm not perfect. I'm set apart. That's what God wants. I'm workable. He's saying, yes, you're workable. You're pliable. I'll deal with that. I'll work with that. I'll help you in that. I'll help you grow in that. That's what it's all about. He says, I see the heart's willing. So I got something to work with. Doesn't mean you got to reach perfection before you can do anything. It just means your heart's got to be sanctified, set apart to where God says, oh, there's some rough edges, but I'll send them off. I'll work with that. If you don't don't believe me, look at David. Look at any of the patriarchs of old. They had flaws. But David had this testimony. He was a man that was after God's own heart. Where's your heart at today? There's things in my past I'm not proud of. Some of you are wearing visible physical scars of your past. You can't do anything about the scars that's on you now but you sure can present any future scars coming up on your life. And you can be honorable in the sight of God regardless of what scars you carry around. And they can be a testimony of God's delivering power. But you don't have to continue in those things that keep scarring. Amen? You can come out from among them and be a separated people, a holy people, a holy nation, a holy priesthood. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. I know it's a little late, but I'm going to ask you to deny yourself just for a moment. And I'd like for you to come and present your bodies before the Lord here this morning. And I'd like for you to start the process. Some are going to be sanctified instantaneously. Some it'll be a work. Some it'll be whatever. But you got to get started somewhere. Would you draw near to him this morning? I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. of God's wanting to work with us. And if we really want him to work, we've got to be serious about this. Would you come and just present your bodies as living sacrifices? And our staff will be behind you praying with you, asking God to help you. As a deer panteth after the water brook, oh God, I panteth to seek him, hunger for him, thirst for him. Spirit, as we come broken with a reverent spirit, Lord, and we're humbled here today, we're not pointing fingers at anybody else, but we're looking in the mirror of the laver for ourselves. We ask you, Lord, as we look over in that mirror, let us be like Isaiah. Though he served in the temple for years and years and years, there came a day when King Uzziah died, and he saw you high and lifted up in your train filling the temple. And the glory and the smoke and the haze was in that place. And Isaiah bowed his knee and he made a confession. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips, a dwelling with a people that are unclean. God, Isaiah first saw himself being unclean that he'd never seen before after serving in that temple all that length of time. But now he comes to the personal realization, ha, I need a cleansing. Separate my heart, O God. Separate me for thy cause and thy glory. Separate me for the mandate 
and the calling and the position that you've called me to in life. Help me to walk holy and righteously before you all the days of my life. Let me dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Help me, Lord, to be at thy right hand. Oh, where there's pleasures forevermore. Help me to look into the hills to where my help cometh from. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Oh, God, this morning, I pray that you sanctify this vessel, Kit Miller. I pray that every evil work or every evil thought, every fleshly concept, every weird idea, things that's out of conformity to your will. Oh, Father, deal with me with them. Sanctify me. Help me to grow in my sanctity. I come back to the laver again, God. Though I've been at that laver and my heart has been set apart, I keep washing. I keep washing my hands. I want to lift up holy hands. Holy hands without wrath or without doubting. I want confidence. I want assurance because I know who you are and who I am in you. I want to have that relationship. I want to be in the holy place. I want to be able to say I have the anointing. I have the goods. Oh, God, take not thy spirit from me, as David said. Oh, but create in me a clean heart. Oh, Lord, let me hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Help me be pure in my intent, pure in my emotions, pure in my thought, pure in my actions, pure in my speech. Let everything in me, Lord, be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Make us holy. Make the palace holy. Make us pure. Separate us. Pull us out. Let them call us whatever they want to call us. Oh, God, let us have truth. Let us speak truth. Let us not fall to the culture, but let us be a catalyst to the culture and give them hope in Jesus Christ. Help us not be conformed to the world, but be transformed ourselves. I pray and I ask it in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah to your name. Blessed be your name, O oh God. You can pray as long as you like. We're going to go ahead and dismiss the congregation. <laughs> Come out tonight. Randy will preach better than I did. God bless you.